All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Tony. I am one of the pastors here at Riverview. 33 years ago this week, the Hubble Space Telescope was developed and released out into outer space. And uh, that video is kind of outer spacey. Very cool, uh, right? Our team is so good at what they do. But, uh, but since that happened, our understanding of astronomy and of, of the universe has just multiplied exponentially. And the idea of this Hubble Space Telescope, it actually didn't start in, the, in 1990. It actually started all the way back in the 1940s. And over the next 50 years in our country, tons of research and time and money was put into developing this technology that would take high-resolution photos of our universe from outer space. And, and, and as this was the 33rd uh, anniversary this week of when it was released, NASA released this timeline of, of the whole project and, and all these really cool pictures. And, and the first picture taken by this telescope was in May of 1990, about a month after it was sent into space. And here it is right here. Amazing, right? <laughs> no, that is a very underwhelming picture. Uh, the, the picture on the right, though, is from the Hubble Space Telescope, and the left is from a ground, is from a ground uh, image. And so to us today, that looks like this is maybe a failure, right? <laughs> like, this didn't do really much of anything. Um, but to people who knew what they were doing, uh, this was a groundbreaking picture because the, the technology and just... This scratched the surface of what this technology could actually do. I geeked out this week, and I just looked at photos from the Hubble Space Telescope. We're going to cycle through a bunch of them. These are pictures of our planets and galaxies and, un- and our universe uh, that really exist. And I'm actually kind of a science nerd, so wasted a lot of time this week <laughs> doing this. Uh, but before I went into vocational ministry, I was actually a middle school science teacher. Uh, this is what I did for a job, and, and I loved getting to teach kids about this stuff, about astronomy, about space exploration, and, and NASA missions. But, but as I was flipping through these photos this week, I couldn't help but be in awe of creation, of our universe, of what exists all around us and, and light years away. And that wonder came through seeing the evidence that was captured by this technology. See, when we see something beautiful with clarity, it changes us. Whether it's a galaxy or a planet or a mountain or even events and and things that happen in the world around us, when we see beautiful things for what they truly are, we can't help but be changed. We're currently in a series here at Riv called If Then, where we're walking very slowly through the New Testament letter of Colossians. This was a letter that the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to a church in Colossae back in the first century. And this is a very short chapter, or this is a very short book of the Bible. If you were to go home today and read it, it would take you about 15 minutes probably to read through this letter. But it is filled with encouragement and exhortation from Paul. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes to this church about his ministry about his desire for them to reject false teaching, about what it means for them to walk in faith and obedience to Christ. He talks about their relationships, both in the home and in the workplace. But what this letter does over and over again is it puts Jesus on display with stunning clarity. And the five verses that we're in this morning, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, that we just heard, are some of the most impactful, not only of Colossians, but of the entire Bible. 
As I studied this passage this week, there was a common thread among people way smarter than me, commentators and theologians, people that wrote these huge books about these verses. And and I just want to read you a couple things that that people have said about these, these verses. One commentary said this, this passage, the most famous in the letter of Colossians, is one of the Christological high points of the New Testament. And it provides a critical basis for the teaching of the entire letter. Another commentary said this, this Christ hymn of Colossians 1 is a powerful statement about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ's supremacy is seen at every turn. And finally, this commentator wrote this, no comparable listing of so many characteristics of Christ and his deity are found in any other scripture passage. Today, as we unpack these five verses, it's going to be like we're looking at Jesus through the Hubble telescope. We're going to see him. We're going to see his work, his life, his power, everything about him in stunning clarity. But we're not going to stop there. While we're going to see Jesus really clearly, we're also going to spend time reflecting on why that matters for us today, why we should savor who Jesus is and what he's done. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and open up to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in five verses, very slow, line by line today. So it's going to be really easy to follow along. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's fine. Uh, They're going to be up on the side screens here. But we're just going to start going verse by verse, Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So in this first verse, we see Jesus described in two unique ways, and we actually see it come out in two words. We see them in the words image and the word firstborn. Now, the Greek word for image there was the word icon, and and what that means is it means for something to be the exact representation of or the exact revelation of. Jesus, in his human form, when, when he came to the earth, he was the perfect representation of God. Other Bible verses tell us this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. John chapter 14, verse 9, when Jesus was talking with his disciples, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And this was because Jesus was the icon, the, the image of the invisible God. Now, as human beings, we tend to prefer things that appeal to our senses, right? We we like when we we know things exist when we can see them or when we can taste them or when we can hear them, right? I mean, the Hubble telescope is evidence of this. That technology takes something that we never would have seen and it puts it before us and we look at it with wonder. We even have that common phrase when something is unbelievable, right? Like, I'll believe it when I see it. There you go. When we say those words, what we're getting at is that we need to experience whatever it is with our senses to know that it exists. What this verse is telling us, though, is if you want to know what God is like, who he is, what he cares about, how he thinks about you and humanity and the world, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He's the image the invisible God, the visible representation that walked on the earth as one of us. We see see Jesus described in another way here. Uh, We see him described as the firstborn over all creation. 
Now, that, first, that word firstborn, it can mean different things. While many of us look at that word normally, what we think is like, okay, that's the first person born in a sequence, right? If you have multiple children, then your oldest would be considered your firstborn, right? That makes sense to us. But, but that word can also be used to describe priority or superiority over something. And that's actually the way that Jesus is being described here. Not in the first way, but the second And we know that because Jesus, as part of the Trinity, has always been. He is eternal. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning. When when God creates, we actually see the Trinity present as creation comes about. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. If you remember, when, when God makes man, what does he say? He says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. It's not let me make God in my image. It's us, and it's our. Here we see evidence of this beautiful fellowship of the Trinity in the very beginning, that we worship one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But different interpretations of of this verse in Colossians 1, verse 15, uh, that word firstborn, actually cause people to have very different beliefs about Jesus. And, And one of those religious groups are Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that that Jesus was firstborn in the literal sense, that that God created, God the Father created Jesus first before the physical world existed. And with that belief comes this idea that Jesus is actually a lesser God than God the Father. And this is not what we believe as Christians. Because all over the Bible, we see that Jesus is eternal. John chapter 1, verse 1, the first words of John's gospel Remind us of this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Those first words remind us of the eternal nature of Jesus. So here, Jesus, as firstborn over all creation, what that means is that he has priority. He has supremacy. He is better than anything that has been created. Because he's the uncreated, right? We see this in the very next verse, verse 16. It continues to talk about creation. It says this, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Okay, now this verse could be a sermon in itself. Each of these verses could be an entire sermon. We don't have time for that. But there are three words here that we cannot miss. And there are words that you would probably miss if you were just kind of reading through this in a Bible plan. Uh, But they help us understand Jesus and his role within creation. It's the words by, through, and for. Everything was created by him. And then later it says all things have been created through him and for him. We saw in verse 15 how Jesus was present during creation, but this verse gives us even more about what that would have looked like. Everything was created by him and through him and for him. John chapter 1, verse 3 says that apart from him, not one thing has been created that has been. You know, some words in this verse help us see the the vastness of Jesus' creative power. It says that everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible the invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. There is nothing in our physical or spiritual world that is outside of Jesus' power. 
and his awareness and his authority. He created it all. And when we see those words there like thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, Paul, the writer, is is primarily talking about the spiritual forces that impact the world that we live in. And the Colossian church especially needed this reminder. We're going to see this in about a month in Colossians chapter 2. But in verse 18 of chapter 2, we we see Paul tell them, do not listen to people who are telling you to worship angels as this way of getting to this higher spiritual state of being. Because there's a lot of false teaching like this happening in Colossae that was going into this church. And while we don't see Paul tell us exactly what it was, we see what they should be setting their minds on in other places that kind of gives us hints. But here, Paul is telling them, worship Jesus alone. All things were created by him and through him and for him. And when we look at creation, when we walk outside, when we look at those pictures, you see evidence of a creator. This week, my family and I, we went to uh, the local library in our community and to see art from kids uh, that were uh, from our community. So our eight-year-old son, Jude, uh, did a painting at school, and that went up in the library, and a bunch of other kids. I may have seen some of your kids' artwork there, too. But it was so cool to be able to celebrate him and the work he put into this creative painting that he made. But, but as we walked through the library, we saw so many beautiful creations, paintings and, and landscapes and, and ceramic pieces. And as we walked through... We couldn't help but reflect on the gifts and the talent of each of these young people who created those. I love that each one had the artist's name, their grade, the materials they used to make it. I looked at one, I was like, oh, this is probably like a high school. It's like, third grade. Wow, they're way better than I am. But all of those creations, what they did was they reflected the creator. The gifts, the personalities, the things that they love. See, when we look at creation, everything about the world, it reflects a powerful and creative, beautiful God that we serve. And this verse tells us that not only did Jesus create, but that he continues to be involved. Verse 17, by him all things hold together. Here at RIV, over the last few months, we, we walked through the Gospel of Mark, and frequently we saw Jesus interact with his physical creation in ways that were miraculous. You remember? We saw him feed thousands of people multiple times with next to nothing. We saw him walk on water to his disciples. We saw the disciples in the midst of a storm, and Jesus said one word, and the, and the storm stopped immediately. In that instance, the disciples even said, even the wind and the waves obey him. And that's not a surprise, is it? All of those events reveal to us Jesus' power, not only in bringing creation about, but in sustaining it and continuing to have authority over it today. Back in 2005, there was a study that came out Uh, from some social scientists. And and what they were trying to do was they were trying to unpack the the primary beliefs and worldview of 
American teenagers. Uh, I've talked about this before, um, but this group of people are millennials today. So the study group were 13 to 19 back then, which are 30 to 35 years old today. Uh, But when all the research was compiled, the, the research group realized there is not a category for what these teenagers believe about themselves or about God and, and the world. So they, they're like, we're just going to make one up. <laughs> and that's what they did. And, and this worldview has three words. It's moralistic, therapeutic, deism. Maybe, you, you, maybe you've heard of this before. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unpack it a little bit today. But each of those words, they highlight a key aspect of how teenagers thought of the world and themselves. The first one was that it was moralistic. If God exists, then he wants you to be good. He wants you to be moral. Be a good person. The second word is that it's, it's therapeutic, that the universal pur- purpose in life is for you to be happy, for you to feel good about yourself, right? To have high self-esteem. But that third word is deism. And this is the belief that while God created the world, he's since checked out. He's no longer intimately involved with what he's made. He's like that adult at the playground, who's checked out on their phone while their kids run around, right? Like, he's there, but he's not really there, right? Like, this is kind of a view that people have. That, yeah, God made everything, but, man, not anymore. And while much of Scripture can be used to refute each of those points, that last one, deism, is in direct opposition to what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. That Jesus holds all things together. The deism worldview sees God as the great clockmaker who created the clock, wound it up, and just let it go. And I think this view of God and of the world, it actually comes from an attempt to make sense of the world and to answer some really big questions that we wrestle with. Why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does God allow people to suffer? Why does God allow sinful, evil people to rise to power and do terrible things? I mean, you can look through the course of history and see this, right? Well, if God's not involved in our world anymore, then the deist worldview seems like a logical way of explaining it. Well, because God's not involved, terrible things happen. But that deist worldview, it's not biblical, Because we see over and over again, both in the Old and New Testaments, that God often interferes in creation in really powerful ways. Miracles, prophecies, changes to unexplainable things happening in the natural world. But the greatest way that God interfered in creation was he stepped into it himself in the person of Jesus He came as a human being to the world for us. He is not uninvolved. He cares. We see in the Bible that not only did did Jesus create, but he sustains, he upholds. And the big Bible word we use for that is the word sovereignty. That God continues to and will always be in complete control of what he has made. That even though sinful people rise to power and often do terrible things. That even though we walk through the pain of sin and suffering, those things do not happen outside of God's intimate knowledge and understanding and wisdom and care and provision. 
A belief in the sovereignty of God gives purpose to all that we go through and all that happens around us. You know, another beautiful reality that we see in this verse that we often miss is that because Jesus holds all things together, we don't have to. We love being in control, right? I do. I love when things happen how I planned. Like, that was going to happen just like I thought it would. Check. Love it. Some of the worst moments in life, though, are those experiences where we're reminded that we're not in control. That we can't hold all things together. Those times in our lives when, when we just can't change our circumstances. When we're at a loss for what to do. When we just can't fix it. I want to fix it. I can't. Thankfully, sometimes we, we, we just can't because we're not meant to. We don't hold all things together. Jesus does, though. Everything was created by him and through him and for him. And in him, all things hold together. Let's keep going. Verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. So here we see that not only did Jesus create and does he continue to sustain all things, but there's a unique group of people that exist in creation that are under his authority and under his leadership. And that group of people is the church. Those who have put their faith and trust in him. And this is not just the local church. This is the big C church, the global universal church. Anyone who has ever put their faith in Jesus Christ Anyone who's ever turned from their sin and turned towards the Savior for forgiveness and life in his name. You know, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, he talked about the church a lot in the New Testament, and he had all these different ways of of giving us pictures to understand the the church. And one of them, one of his favorites, was this illustration of the body. We see in 1 Corinthians how the body's made up of many parts, and it's describing how the church is unique with its people and, and gifts. But here we see that Jesus is the head. And the head of the body is the command center. It's a source of authority and, and control and, and decision-making. And while God calls people to, to be part of the church by belief in Christ and to serve the church with their gifts, no believer on earth will ever become the focal point of the church. No person apart from Jesus will become the object of a church's worship. If that ever happens, leave the church. Leave that one. Because the focus of the local church and global church must always be Jesus. On him, his continued provision, his continued leadership by empowering people through the Holy Spirit. It's all about Jesus. We see next here that he's described as the firstborn from the dead. We saw that word firstborn back in 15, verse 15, when I was talking about creation. But here, the firstborn is being talked about in resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, if you were here on Easter, uh, we talked all about this, that Christ has been raised from the dead. And, and then there's a word there, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. Because Jesus rose from the dead, because he conquered death and sin and Satan, it is guaranteed that those who believe in him will as well. Jesus was the first fruits of that. And without his resurrection, 
there would be no resurrection for anyone else. We see the fruit of this resurrection in the rest of the verse. It says, uh, he's the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Other translations of the verse, uh, if you were to kind of read this verse a little bit wider, you'd see the, the translation for first place is the word preeminent or supreme. And this is the only place in the New Testament we actually see that Greek word, and it's the word proteo. And that word just means to be without equal or without comparison. And when we talk about first place, like we know what that means. This actually comes up in our life more than we probably think, right? We see it all the time. When you're going out to eat, what do you do? You look at restaurant reviews, right? You find out which restaurant is preeminent. What is the best taco place in Greater Lansing, right? And then you go there. Or when you're looking to watch a movie, you look at the reviews. Has this won any awards? Maybe it won best picture. Let's watch that. But over the last few years, nowhere has this idea of preeminence uh, been more like, prevalent than in the sports world. Like, I love sports. I love following stuff on ESPN. But seemingly every week, there is another debate about the GOAT, right? That means not GOATs, okay? Like, if you're not a sports person, that's greatest of all time, the GOAT, okay? And, and just like two weeks ago, this happened. Like, right before the NBA playoffs started, um, over 100 NBA players were anonymously surveyed about the preeminent basketball player in the NBA of all time. And there's a right answer to this, okay? <laughs> it's easy. It's Michael Jordan, okay? Like, yeah, 58, thank you, thank you. 58% of NBA players were smart, and they got it right. Um, but a third of them, way wrong, because they chose LeBron James. Um, you got to take his airness over King James. But, but, and to drive this point home, Space Jam 1, way better than Space Jam 2, okay? That's the debate in our house right now with our five and eight-year-old versus me and Danielle. And they're wrong because Space Jam 1's better. But, but we, we love the idea of things that are preeminent and supreme and, and first place. We love witnessing the best, at, at, uh, the best person at whatever their craft is. Like we get to see them do that. And it's like, wow. And what we see about Jesus in this passage is that because of his resurrection, that he conquered the great enemy of death, that he defeated Satan when he walked out of that tomb because he broke the curse of sin, that all of creation and humanity has been plagued with, all of those truths show us that Jesus is without comparison. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He has first place in everything. That is why that Resurrection Sunday is the most beautiful day. Let's keep going. Verse 19. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. That word dwell sticks out to me in that verse. And, and the word dwell, what it just means is it means to reside in, right? Or to live in a certain place. And this idea of God dwelling with his people is a really prominent theme throughout the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, God's people, when they were wandering in the wilderness after God freed them from slavery, do you remember? They would walk around in the wilderness, but they would set up a, a tent called a tabernacle. And there was a place in the tabernacle where God's presence would go to dwell with his people. But then when they would move, they'd take it down and they would set it up again, 
right? But this eventually became the temple, the brick-and-mortar building that no longer moved around with the people but remained in one place in Jerusalem. And there was a room in that temple, the most holy place, where God would dwell, where the presence of God would dwell among his people. But it's when Jesus arrived, we saw how God's dwelling with his people went from being this impersonal, non-human presence to being intensely personal, to being human, to being like the ones he had come to save. The fullness of God dwelled in a person. I love John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, resided, lived among us. You know, I love in verse 19 that we, we, we see God's attitude in this reality as well. The first four words of verse 19, don't miss this. For God was pleased. I don't know about you, but so often in my life, I, I do things out of necessity or out of utility, right? Like I, or I just going to work, chores around the house, paying bills, whatever it is. We do things because they have to be done a lot of times, right? And I think we can take that mindset to, to God and what he has done. Well, he sent Jesus for us because it needed to be done, right? We need a savior. We need to be rescued. But while that is true, we do need a savior. Don't miss the attitude God had in doing that. For God was pleased. It brought God incredible joy to have his fullness dwell in the person of Jesus. It was pleasing to God for people to be able to see and experience grace through a person, through someone like them, a perfect, an actual perfect person, the one sent to save them. And we actually see in the next verse, that is exactly why Jesus, this perfect person, was sent for us. Verse 20, it says, for God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Here, we see the ultimate purpose behind why it pleased God so much to have his fullness dwell in Jesus. It was so that Jesus would come to reconcile everything that had been broken. Now, that word reconcile is one that makes sense to us. It's not just a Bible word. We use it in everyday language. And what it means is to restore friendly relations between. This can be two people or two groups. But reconciliation isn't necessary when restoration's present, right? When there's unity in a relationship, it's good. We're reconciled. But it's only necessary when the relationship is broken and needs to be mended. We see how this happened with us and with God in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, we actually see in those two chapters what a beautiful and unified and peaceful relationship between God and man is like. Adam and Eve walked in this beautiful creation God had for them, and they walked with God. He provided for them. He cared for them. He gave them everything they needed. But that relationship between God and mankind fractured in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, because of sin. When Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they chose to worship themselves. 
over God. And at that moment, sin entered them and the rest of creation causing that once beautiful relationship with God to break. And from that point on, through the rest of the Bible, through the rest of human history, we see the fruit of this. We see sin wreak havoc in our relationships, in our world. And it all started in the garden. How then would this relationship be fixed? Would it come through being good enough? Through achieving that standard of morality that we hope that God would one day say, you've done it. You're moral enough. You're good enough. You have earned your way back into my good graces. Good job. No. Because that can never happen. Because of our sin. Because as sinful people, we can never attain the perfect righteousness that God requires. Only a perfect person could do that. Romans 5 tells us about this perfect person. Verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Then verse 15, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if by the one man, Adam's trespass, the many died, how much more? Have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, the perfect man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. This is the gospel message. This is the good news of our faith, that only a perfect person could reconcile us to a holy and righteous God. And that person exists. It's Jesus. He did what needed to be done. He never sinned. He lived his life in perfect obedience to God the Father. He was the only person who ever lived who did not deserve to bear the price of sin. Yet he did. And it wasn't for his own was for mine. It was for yours. He bore our sins so that we may live. He took on the full weight of our sin, the just and righteous wrath of God onto himself so that we could be free. And it came to what it says in Colossians 1 verse 20, that he reconciles all things to himself, things that are far apart. He brings them together making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Anyone who accepts this sacrifice for their sins, that Jesus took their place, they will have eternal life. The most famous verse in the Bible talks about this very thing. John chapter three, verse 16. For God, so, for God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But then look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know, this week, as I flip through all of those pictures of outer space, I just, I couldn't help but pause 
and, and just think about life and creation and, and God's power. Because when you see something for what it truly is, with breathtaking clarity, it gives you pause. It changes you. That technology has shown us how vast and beautiful our universe truly is. And, and from that evidence, our understanding of the universe has changed. We know so much more than we did before. And that knowledge came through seeing the evidence so clearly. These five verses are a high-definition picture of the person and work of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. He created everything. Everything belongs to him. He holds all things together. He's the head of the church. He's the firstborn of the dead. He has first place in everything. The fullness of God dwells in him. And he reconciles everything to himself through the cross. Now, I don't know about you, but I can often prefer sermons that are not like this one or Bible verses that are not like these because I like sermons with things to do, commands, go be more patient. Don't do this, but do that, right? These five verses, it's not a command. It's not one thing to do, one action to take. Instead, we're given a picture. We're given something to gaze at with wonder, to savor, to cherish, to believe, to be thankful for. And it's Jesus. Is Jesus preeminent in your life? Is he supreme? Is he first place? Is he the object of your hope? Well, if you're not yet a Christian, that happens by faith, by belief in him, by seeing your, that you've been setting your hope on something else and just changing your direction, repenting of that and setting your hope on Jesus. Choose to follow him today. If you've never done that before, believe in him. And if you are here and you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, while we don't see any commands in these verses, I'm gonna give us all something to do this week, okay? You ready? Rest. Rest. Rest in these truths. While you may be tempted to believe that all you have belongs to you, rest and remember verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. While you may struggle to control every part of your life, to hold all things together, choose this week to rest and to remember verse 17, that it's by him all things hold together. While you may strive and work for preeminence, 
to be first place in whatever you do. Rest. Remember that Jesus is to have first place in everything about you in your life. And finally, while you may struggle with sin, to follow Jesus, to walk in faith and obedience, rest. And remember, verse 20, you have been reconciled to God. That through the cross, your relationship with God has been forever and will forever be restored. Let the truth of the gospel, of who Jesus is, our supreme Savior, be where you rest this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do confess that I so often want to just measure myself <laughs> by certain verses or certain um, things that you've said in your word, and I can just want to do that and not do this. But God, I, I thank you for the timing, personally, in my own life of, of these verses today. Help me rest in these truths. Help us as a church family rest in who Jesus is, in what he's done, in who we don't have to be, because he is. God, thank you for your grace that, that even though you needed to send us a savior, that it pleased you to do so. For you were pleased, God to have all of your fullness dwell in Jesus. Thank you for that. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.